This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 35. This is Writing Excuses, What You Leave Out. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. That I'm probably Brandon. wasn't what I was supposed to leave out, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. We all just sat there going, what is he? Oh! <laughs> and you are? I'm Dan, I guess. And I'm Howard. <laughs> and uh, unapologetic. <laughs> um, all right, it's what you leave out. flash. <laughs> so when I teach my... Uh, students about this topic. One of the things I mentioned is when I was a newer writer, one of the things I got told frequently is that you want to, in world building, you know, world build a ton, um, but not put all of it in. Put enough of it in that, you know, the reader, you're indicating to the reader that it's like an iceberg, right? You can see the tip and you can see that there is so much more beneath. Um, The more I became a published writer, the more I worked in it, the more I realized that that was... um, not a a fantasy, but perhaps uh, people in the business making it sound a little more grandiose than it is. Because most people I know do not world build the entire iceberg and then show you the tip. What they do is they world build the tip and then they find a way to world build a hollow iceberg that makes you think <laughs> that there is the rest of the iceberg underneath there. Um, the goal in world building is not to do everything, just to do as little as you can and still look like you've done everything. <laughs> Two nights ago, I was watching the special features for uh, the the movie uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon for that for that film, and they built an eighty five percent scale oil rig over you know a, a little you know three foot deep pond. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason they did it was so that when the actors were outside up high shooting scenes, the actors are reacting as if they are outside and up high. Right. They could have done the whole thing green screen, but they didn't. They needed that they needed that level of verisimilitude. And then there was this point where the the VFX guy says, so we didn't actually build the whole oil rig. We only built the front. And you see this scene where the helicopter is coming in and the camera has panned around the oil rig and it is just like 25%, 20% of the oil rig. And then the VFX guy says, and this is what we had to build and throws all the other stuff in. And, you know, after hearing how much time they spent building 20% of the oil rig for verisimilitude, the piece that they needed, uh, this iceberg thing totally makes sense. Build the piece that's required for verisimilitude. Drill all the way down on that, and then fix the rest in post. <laughs> so, how do we apply this to our world building? What do you guys do when you are world building? Um, how do you how do you give this indication that there's more underneath there? How do you decide what to leave out of your story? How do you decide not to what to, what not to world build? So. Following along with the set building metaphor here, I remember reading an early um, interview with Gene Roddenberry when they were doing the original Star Trek series. And he said that he wanted to have an engine room and they weren't going to build him one until he put that scene into the pilot episode. And he's like, look, well, we we have to have a scene here. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. And so um, and so they gave him a, an, an engineering 
what I do when I am building my worlds and planning my books is I figure out, well, where are my scenes set? And where do I want those scenes to be set? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, am I going to be talking enough about main engineering, for example, that I need to figure out what it looks like and where it is and how it works? Or is my story going to focus on some other thing? And so they didn't build the entire or even 20% of the Starship Enterprise. They built a bridge and an engineering room and a transporter room, and that's kind of it. Maybe some hallways. Because that's where they knew their story was going to take place. And so I try to figure out, what am I focusing on? What am I going to be using the most? And that's what I focus on. Yeah, and I'm very much the same way. I I really only worry about the things my characters are going to be directly interacting with. And I want to make sure that I understand enough of how they interact of how it works so that the interaction makes sense. But like, you know, when we move through our daily life, we interact with a lot of stuff that, you know, there's a number of houses that you pass down the street and you have no idea what's in those houses, but they're still houses. Mm -hmm. You go to Disneyland, you don't actually know what it takes to make Disneyland work. It's just the front facing stuff. So one of the things that I do is I I think about the pieces that, that my character is going to have that direct interaction with, uh, like you were talking about, um, And one of the ones that I find works really well are uh, past events, referring to things. And uh, usually these are things that I have no idea what they actually are. But instead of saying, well, this happened in 1457, like, I don't actually want to figure out how long ago a thing happened. I don't know. So I'll say, well, it happened during the, you know, right after the Battle of the Seven Red Armies. And everyone's like, oh, well, the Battle of the Seven Red Armies. Clearly, (laughs) she's spent all of this time thinking about. And what that's done is it saved me from actually Mm -hmm. working out a timeline. Mm -hmm. Because I've, now I I can place the Battle of the Seven Red Armies anywhere I need it to be. One of the things that that's, that that suggests to me Mm -hmm. is that you have given them the information in a way that asks more questions rather than answers them. Mm -hmm. And that gives a great, that, I mean, we know when it took place, but we know it based on relation to an event rather than an exact number of years. And in the audience's mind, it's not answering the question so much as it's saying, don't worry, I've got this. Also, here's something else to worry about. Have you ever spent a lot of time in your world building before writing or during writing uh, a story and then decided to leave that out of the story? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When, why, and what made you make that decision? Uh, in the glamorous histories uh, for Without a Summer, I spent a great deal of time figuring out how Parliament worked in relationship to glamour and what laws were being passed and not passed and got into the novel and realized that that entire plot structure was completely irrelevant. I like knew that I had been all of this research on this one particular historical figure who never appears in the novel now. Um, and it was basically, it just didn't help the book and chucked it. And it was one of the things that made me realize that I really need to think about what the book is and then do the, mm-hmm. the research. And, and, and I, I will say that I, I approach my research now the same way that, I, I mean, I approach my world building the same way that I approach my research, which is that I'll do like these broad strokes, but I only really drill down on the stuff that actually I need to. You know, I spent a lot of time in the Stormlight Archive before I was writing it, working on the writing systems and, you know, the glyphs that they were going to draw on things like this. And I left that all out because once I actually wrote the book and I looked back at the stuff I'd done, I realized 
I'm not an artist. And <laughs> beyond that, I'm not um, an expert in languages. And, and I just hired that out. Mm-hmm. And so I took all the stuff that I, and I didn't even give it to them because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to use the text that I've written in the book. I'm going to give this to the artist and I'm going to say, what would you imagine this to be? And Isaac came up with stuff that was way better than any of the stuff that I had come up with. It kind of taught me also that maybe I should spend my effort where I know I'm going to be using it in the story. And then I can, after the fact, I, yeah. can, I can hire some of these things out. Uh, Brandon, you and I just did this yesterday, actually, mm. on the, the project we're collaborating on, yeah. Apocalypse Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been wrestling with this book for months now, mm-hmm. and yesterday made the decision that kind of the main thing we need to do to fix it is to axe one of the magic systems. Yeah. And it was something very cool that we considered foundational to the story. But now that we're looking at the book in its current form— it's kind of beside the point. And it's also the thing that is causing the biggest problem with the story because mm-hmm. where the story is spiraling out of control are all these scenes where I spent lengthy amounts of time talking about the world building and the history. Scenes that Dan cut out a lot of when he did his revision, <laughs> but it, the, the effect of it's still there and it's leading to this big confusing ending. Um, where I had, you know, do what I do, tie all these world building elements together, but in ways that were cool for those world building elements and don't really work for the story. Yeah. Um, and it's a point where we have to cut out, you know, one of the things that is my signature is a magic system. Granted, we have mm-hmm. multiples, so it's it's still going to be uh, cool, but it's going to be a way better book if we just streamline. Yeah. My, uh, my, my approach here is often uh, to ask uh, where the line is between uh, show versus tell. Um, there are There are times in the story where it, it's absolutely required for the reader because, because it's fun, because there's emotional content, whatever, to show an event happening. Mm-hmm. And then there are times when all the reader needs is to know that the event happened and there was an outcome. And so entire scenes will vanish from the writing because what I needed to do, what the story needed, was for somebody to say, battle was fought, so-and-so won. Oh, really? That sounds terrible. Uh, and off we go with the core story. Let's yes. stop for our book of the week. All right, so our book of the week is Stealing Worlds by Carl Schroeder. And I got to read this, an arc of it, and it is fantastic. This is um, near future. It's an internet of things. Uh, a young woman uh, discovers that her father has been murdered. Um, she thinks. Uh, everyone else thinks that it was uh, a just an accident. Um, And then people start coming after her. Uh, And how do you disappear when everything is connected? And so it's, it's really, really cool. And it feels like he has thought of everything. But the stuff that we're actually seeing is just the stuff that she interacts with directly. It's great world building, great characterization. Uh, I mean, it's a really good book. It's, also happens to illustrate some of these points. Excellent. And that was Stealing Worlds by Carl Carl Schroeder. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've talked about world-building elements um, that we cut out. Are there ever things that you have decided, even before you launched into the book, you're like, I'm just not going to touch that. I'm not going to go that direction with the world-building Things that you just, yeah, why why have you done this? Oh, like in uh, the the Lady Astronaut books. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I very carefully do not talk about what the rocket engine is that is driving the ship to Mars. I'm like, really carefully do not talk about that. Right. Uh, because um, the amount of, of research that I was going to have to do, but also my character is not a rocket engineer, right? She she pilots things. She needs to know how to pilot things. Uh, she needs, And she does math. Um, so she needs to do those things, but I did not need to know how the rocket engine worked. And as soon as I... S- worked on figuring that out, that was going to lock me into certain decisions. Like if I decide that it is atomic oxygen, that locks me into one line of technology. If I decide that it is nuclear, that locks me into another line of technology. And because I don't know what subsequent books are going to need, I decided to not make that decision and to leave room for it to be any of those things uh, and just... I establish some trust with the reader early on so that I can just like, just get in there and everybody, it's like, they're going to Mars. Obviously they've solved how they get there. (laughs) I uh, I had a conversation with this, uh, about this same topic with a a writer um, that I know that we were kind of brainstorming on some world building and things. And uh, the way I presented it as there's like an uncanny valley of uh, world building, where at a certain point, it's far off and you're leaving out the right details from what we're doing that nobody starts to question really how it works. Like, if you don't do enough, people are confused and they you start to lose them. You do the right amount and people are willing to take your word on it. They suspend their disbelief. They accept the world building. It feels really logical to them. You've cut, got the couple corner cases that they would assume. And then there's a stage where you start explaining it so much that the rational part of their brain kicks in and says, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. This and this and this and this. And you start to hit this sort of uncanny valley where suddenly mm-hmm. you lose them. They aren't willing to suspend their disbelief anymore. And that can be a really fine balance to walk. We have this problem in theater uh, with with all the time where you've got a set. And if you, if you go very minimalist with it, um, you know, you're asking the audience to be engaged. You go too minimalist with some shows and, and everything falls apart. But if you've got like a set where everything looks really nice and then there's this one piece that is mm-hmm. hyper-realistic, everything else in the story feels just awful. Beauty uh, and yeah. the Beast, the animation, when they had, that was the first stuff of the computer they animation. They CG in the ballroom scene. And the ballroom scene looks, it, it looks wrong because it is more rendered than everything else. And then everything else starts to look false. Yeah, I did a, a black box production of Assassins in college, and it was all just super minimal sets, but we had a super realistic like roll top desk, and it just it looked terrible. Yeah, because it made the rest of the show look terrible. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, my favorite pieces of set design that I ever did. <laughs> this is a side tangent, but uh, but a good example. Um, a friend of mine called me on a, a Monday. And said, we had load in this weekend um, and our set designer did not show up with the set. I have just found out that she has skipped town uh, with all of the money which she has spent on drugs. We open oh. on Friday. Help me. And, and he said, and I have $75. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So we sat down and we talked about what are the things that have to be on stage or the show will fall apart. And it was a tree the moon, and a wall. And that was basically it. So I bought some foam core and I got some black paint 
and I did this dry brush, minimalist New Yorker style thing and of a tree, a moon and, and the wall. And I think I, I think I gave him a chair too, as a bonus. Um, <laughs> Cause you're a cause you had, you had $8 left. I still had $8. <laughs> I had to get paid out of that 75, you know? Yeah. So I, uh, it, but it, we we just stripped it down to what do you actually need or the show will fall apart. When the review came out, it raved about the minimalist design and delicate ethereal touches of the set. Meanwhile, in the program, I am listed as scenic proctologist because I pulled that set out of my ass. <laughs> so point being, just look at the world building details you need to keep the mm-hmm. show from falling apart. Well, and it can also be helpful to look at the world-building details that would ruin things. Yeah. When I did my cyberpunk series, I specifically avoided artificial intelligence. There's algorithms, there's swarm intelligence, but there is no self-aware thing because that is a singularity that I was not prepared to deal with. So that's not in the story. Yeah. It's not a possible technology in that world. This... Story of Mary Robinette's actually leads us really well into our homework, which Howard is going to give us. Yep, uh, I want you to take your uh, your world building slider, and I want I want you to pull it all the way to zero for one of your chapters. Take a chapter that's got uh, that's got some world building exposition in it, that's got some uh, you know some cues about what's going on in your world that are deepening things, and pull all those out. Leave yourself with zero world building. And have a look at that chapter and see which elements of the story fail and which elements of the story still work. This is not so that you can tell yourself that you don't need to world build. This is so you can tell yourself. I need a tree and a moon. I need a tree and a moon and a wall, and I will give myself a chair. And as a bonus in the liner notes, I'm going to give you a copy of the uh, the first scene of Shades of Milk and Honey, in which I have done this exercise. So I've stripped out everything that I identified as exposition. And I have to say that scene is a mess. (laughs) This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.